looking at this opportunity, we could go and pitch in front of all of Canadians across the, the country and be able to really get our name out there. We could get some financing and be able to do so. But at the same time, this was a really risky moment because if we went and embarrassed ourselves, if we went, I mean, we are a, a fintech application, we're managing people's money. If we don't present ourselves the right way, the whole business could go bankrupt just based off bad publicity at, at that point. Welcome to Montreal Startups a show where we cover local, innovative, fast-growing companies and the inspiring stories behind them. On today's show, we talk to the co-founder and CEO of renowned Canadian fintech app, Milo. Bring up the topic of personal finance or investing with people, and you'll get a wide range of responses. For some, the topic is taboo. They just don't enjoy talking about it. Others can't get enough of sharing their favorite savings hacks and investment successes. The range of people's financial knowledge varies widely as well. For every coupon collector and day trader, there's a poor spender living paycheck to paycheck and someone who's financially illiterate. The fact is, 53% of Canadian millennials have less than $1,000 in their bank account. And this is a major, major problem. One that Philip Barrar, a born American with a Quebecois mother started picking up on. He realized that what Canadians really need is an easy way to save and invest their money in a way that's effortless and convenient, but powerful enough to help them reach their financial goals at the same time. His answer to this massive Canadian problem is Milo, an app that rounds up your everyday purchases and invests your spare change into investment vehicles like ETFs and mutual funds. With over half a million downloads and a near-perfect five-star rating on the App Store, Milo is having a real impact on the financial well-being of Canadians across the country. And this all sounds nice and warming, but you're about to find out just how many hurdles and regulations Phil and his team had to get past to get to this point. I guess it's fair to say he's come a long way since his first business, where he spent his days collecting and selling golf balls at the course he lived on. I was that kid at seven years old who was uh, going on the driving range and stealing golf balls and uh, taking those golf balls and <laughs> selling them to, to golfers on the, the 14th hole, right? So uh, selling them at a, a quarter a pop. So um, always starting on where do I get my supply? How do I, I flip that supply and, and getting started? Um, I love brainstorming ideas. Uh, I always wanted to be an inventor uh, growing up. My dad actually used to work for NASA, and uh, while he's working for NASA, he did patent commercialization. So we take all these great inventions that uh, people would come up with over at NASA um, and find real-world applications to be able to go and, and provide those and, and bring those to market. So my I, I think that's really interesting, right? Because a lot of people don't realize how many products that we use today that were actually like gps for example was invented by nasa right absolutely so it's it's and and, and they have this huge r d budget to come up with these great ideas and um oftentimes some of the problems that they can solve um are problems that we wouldn't have invested in that amount of money to to solve originally right so it's mm-hmm. how can you um better your community and better your world with the uh, technology you invented for other purposes so mm-hmm. um so i had always an entrepreneurial kind of uh, spirit um an upbringing through kind of the business lessons my dad used to, to coach me. Um, patents, commercialization, uh, idea, identification. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that was a, a good foundation for, for me growing up. So that, that's almost a story that you hear with a lot of entrepreneurs, right? They, they were always hands-on, always trying to come up with the next idea, always brainstorming. And a lot of them, too, their, their parents were entrepreneurs. They had that experience. 
So you you come to Montreal, you study at Concordia University. When you graduate, I mean, you could you could go back to the U.S., right? What made you want to stay in Montreal? What was your next... Uh, so, so maybe a little bit around uh, my time at Concordia and, and kind of what drew me to, to stay in Montreal was a lot about uh, the time I spent at John Molson School of Business. Um, so as soon as I got there, the first thing I did was look for the entrepreneurship school uh, over um, within Concordia. And, and of course, they didn't have an entrepreneurship program. So uh, I talked to the small business professor and talked to her about kind of this need that we need a better curriculum uh, there. So one of my first things I did was join the Entrepreneurship and Management Association. I quickly became president of the association for, for about two years. Got a lot of hands-on experience actually going and, and building business ideas and, and, and how do you take a concept and actually uh, commercialize it. So I got a hands-on experience working at the Concordia Entrepreneurship Management Association, but I also spent that time with that professor and actually created the entrepreneurship minor at Concordia. So now you can actually take a curriculum, focus on entrepreneurship, and be able to, to manage that. Right. That, that must have been after or before my time there, because that, that was a program that I could take when I was there. Yep. So uh, I, I started that first conversation back in 2008. I think it finally came to market back in 2012. So uh, it took uh, it took some time to get up and running, but definitely had a big impact uh, there. So uh, graduated with a degree in management with a minor in marketing. Um, I launched a bunch of business ideas. I'm not going to call them full-blown businesses, but uh, everything from affiliate marketing to e-commerce businesses and just learning how to build websites and building product. Um, so when it came time to actually graduate and decide what I wanted to do, well, I was torn. Do I go to consulting and get some hands-on experience and kind of maybe working with bigger budgets? Do I go and uh, work for a startup and see how, you know, what are the, the traits that you need? Um, and then I said, you know what, I'm just going to go for it. And uh, I took $6,000. I outsourced an idea over to India. I went through the whole product development and launched my first business and jumped right into entrepreneurship as soon as I graduated. So what was, what was that first business called? That first business was called Ski PCR. So uh, Ski PCR was a patient care reporting uh, platform that allowed ski patrollers to um, build electronic medical records for their patients using uh, an iPad application. So, uh, Are you back, a big skier? Is that how you got the idea? I'm a big skier, a big, uh, big snowboarder, so I, I do a bit of both. And um, back in 2013, there was a new regulation went in effect in the United States uh, that essentially um, mandated that medical records were controlled in a, a certain way. And in order to control paper medical records in that way, you'd have to make photocopies, you'd have to keep them in two separate locations, you have to have disaster recovery plans. Um, it just it wasn't economically viable for someone to meet all those new regulations with a uh, with a paper method. So I created this niche market uh, software application, and, and I thought with this new regulation, I'd be able to go and, and really uh, tackle and corner uh, a piece of the market that I thought was really exciting. Then you could scale the day camps, sporting events, uh, any other kind of areas where they have um, a ski patrol-like uh, facility. But uh, I quickly learned the difference between building a business and self-employment. The sales cycle is long. Um, they uh, didn't really have a tolerance for uh, for paying for, for this type of product. Um, Ski Patrol is not a revenue center for a mountain. It was a cost center, and it's obviously uh, very volunteer-based as well. So um, the made that sales cycle even longer when they're part-time, volunteering, and um, don't have a direct line to the kind of the decision-makers that hold the purse strings. So I built a 
fantastic product. Um, it was an amazing experience. The first time I saw a ski patroller actually use my software while dealing with uh, a patient, a child that had just broken his arm on the mountain. Right. And he focused more on the actual child and being able to use my software to show him specifically where does it hurt, documenting different things. And um, to be able to see how technology can seamlessly integrate into an experience like that was, it was quite fascinating. So um, awesome product. I did everything from sales, marketing, uh, product development. I learned how to use Photoshop and, and built the first prototypes. Um, and then I outsourced directly to, to a team in India. So I was... How, how did you find that, that team in India? Because that's something that a lot of entrepreneurs would like to do, but it's not easy to... to... Definitely not easy. So I created an Upwork account. Um, I shortlisted 250 different firms, and there are a lot of firms out there. So I shortlisted uh, the firms that I wanted to go through. I actually interviewed about 100 of them, um, and those were anything from a five-minute call to an hour call. Um, I brought it down to two people I wanted to work with, and then I, I ended up selecting uh, one of them. So, where, where were you getting the, the technology experience at that time? Because to, to you know to interview these these firms, you need to be able to speak the language and know exactly what you want. From a technical standpoint, right? So, were you teaching that yourself? So, as an entrepreneur, you got to hustle and you got to grind. And uh, at Concordia, and during these kind of business ideas that I had, I learned how to build WordPress websites. I learned the basics of how to get web hosting up and running. Um, I learned the tips and tricks, kind of the inside, what's the foundation that you need for for this, and then. Um, I, I just did a lot of learning online. So I built a network of people. I uh, Googled uh, when I didn't know something, and um, eventually, you just build the knowledge base that you need to be able it grows, to, right. to do that. It grows, absolutely. So what made you shut down Ski PCR? So, or is um, it still running today? So no, I, uh, we, we shut it down about, three, uh, about a year ago. We shut it down. You're saying we, did you have a co-founder in this? So again, um, my dad was very much always a business coach and business mentor to me, and he still is um, someone that I call and talk to uh, on the regular about what's happening with uh, whatever business venture I'm in today. It's Milo and um, giving me advice on, on how to move forward. So um, so yeah, I, my dad helped me uh, get okay. his first business up the round, uh, obviously with uh, 20 years of business experience. Um, he's just your co-founder by default. Co-founder by default, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so um, and, and he supported me through all stages of entrepreneurship. So um, definitely both on a career-wise and personal development-wise, uh, uh, definitely the best advisor I've ever had. So, um, t- so together with him, you guys decided that this had reached its peak or just... Yeah, we had a, a few customers in the New England uh, area. Um, it just, I literally drove to every single mountain I could get to within a 12 hour radius. And uh, I did sales cycles, hard pitches, free trials. Um, we got a couple customers on board, but just the cost of maintaining the technology versus, you know, if you had to build a development team, a support team, and being able to keep everything up and, and running, um, it just wasn't economically uh, feasible. So, uh, we decided uh, it was a great learning experience and it built an awesome product, but just unfortunately it wasn't a great business. And and what comes out of that is a ton of experience, a ton of learnings. And I mean, it's the it's the classic cliche in, in the startup world, fail, fail fast, fail often, right? And all that stuff. Um, but, you know, not for nothing. What's, what's your next step after, after you're gathering yourself and shutting this project down? 
using the same skills I just learned. So I, uh, young, uh, 24 years old, looking to hustle um, and, and, and loving the technology space and, and specifically the, the mobile app space and uh, wanted to do something B2C facing. I said, you know, I had such a difficult time with the sales cycle going in B2B, let's try the B2C route. Came up with an application called MyPiece. So MyPiece was an off-peak hour restaurant discount application. Uh, we targeted Montreal specifically and um, got that off the ground with uh, next to no funding and uh, all bootstrapped again, used the same outsourced team in India to be able to build it. So we spent about uh, three and a half, four months actually building out the, the product itself um, and then just going out and signing up restaurants for this free restaurant discount application. So what happened with, with my piece? How long were you running that and how did that go? So my piece was um, an awesome platform. We quickly grew to about 25,000 users, 250 restaurants here in Montreal, primarily focused around the student market, so Concordia and McGill. I had to prove out the revenue model, and, and as we were testing out the different revenue models available, um, identified that it may have worked better as a marketing platform than a technology platform. I was really enthusiastic about building a technology kind of business and, and moving that forward. Um, ended up uh, selling the, the, the company to an uh, out-of-home marketing agency here based in Montreal as well. And, um, and yeah, took all of those learnings again and, and, and bundled into my next business. So I was fortunate enough to actually start the VC pitching process when I was over at uh, working with MyPiece. And uh, two of the VCs I was pitching at that time were Jay and Dominic First from First Capital Partners. So um, they quickly became mentors to me. And while they're looking to invest in, in my piece, they're also looking to invest in me and and and, and uh, in your next venture and and, and what's what's happening there. So right. um, I had a lot of great business mentorship, and I would say uh, surrounding yourself with the right people is extremely important. And Jay and Dominic First were were two people that were, were instrumental in, in in launching the the next business. So. So your decision to move on from my piece was less performance based or the fact that the business wasn't viable is more out of interest, uh, personal interest for you wanting to be more in a technology space rather than marketing facing. So I saw the the opportunity. I, I mean, I, I took this concept. I built it up to a point where we had 25,000 users, 250 restaurants. So it's obviously a fit in the market. And I had an opportunity to um, let a great team of, of experienced professionals take that product and, and, and breathe more life into it and with the revenue and partnership uh, opportunities that they had. So for me, it's, I was able to bring this uh, product to market and, and, and call that a success. I didn't see that as a, a business I was going to get venture funded um, to the next level. So where I wanted to take my career and be able to build it um, led me to this next opportunity. Mm. So um, early on, I actually partnered with Jay and Dominic first from First Capital. They had a fintech startup studio here in, in Montreal. And I had the opportunity to go and work with them on building Canada's next greatest fintech platform. And uh, essentially it came from the fact that I'm American. I bootstrapped my first two businesses. My friends were getting jobs at marketing agencies and tech giants making um, awesome salaries. And I wanted to have the same quality of life and standard of living that they had. And um, I found a way to be really good with my money. So I made a dollar stretch. I was very frugal. Um, you have to as a bootstrapped entrepreneur. You, those are skills that you learn. And I had a whole bunch of personal finance uh, apps in the U.S. that I used. And I said, you know, my peer group here in Canada needs to have the tips and tricks that I'm using along with the apps that I've, I've been able to use as well in the U.S. to offer them an even better product and service. So um, with that experience, as well as the, the partnership with First Capital Partners, I was able to go and, and get Milo up and off the ground. 
So is that when you when you left my piece and you know you're talking about all these relationships uh, experiences that you've built how, how did you essentially come up for the the concept for for Milo at that point and and decide that's what you're going to dive into so it had to do with a passion of personal finance um again the the skills i learned bootstrapping my first two businesses are skills that are are invaluable to right. you for yeah. for the rest of your life and um, and they become just second nature. So with this kind of passion for personal finance and being able to do so, I knew the area that I wanted to tackle. I saw that a large part of my peer group where people were just graduating, starting their first jobs, still living paycheck to paycheck, having difficulty managing their finances, they needed a better way to be able to achieve their goals and achieve their dreams. So it was less about the solution, but it was more about the problem and being passionate about the problem and having a skill set that I was able to go and apply to that. Um, I really didn't know the the solution and what it was going to be. It was more focused around identifying the opportunity using the U.S. applications I had access to and be able to take best of breed concepts that solve for part of those problems and then allowing the customer to be defined um, defining the solution that they wanted to see so going through the whole customer discovery process All right okay so so tell us about Milo tell us what Milo does this idea that eventually came to fruition and you decide to put on paper and start building towards what is what is that idea so it, it really seeded from 53% of Canadian Millennials have less than a thousand dollars in their bank account regardless of how much money they make. So they could be making $30,000 a year, $130,000 a year. They spend everything they make. They need a better way to put money aside to plan for things like moving out of their parents' house, getting married and having kids. So Milo solves for this by connecting automatically to your credit and debit cards, routing up your purchases to the nearest dollar, taking that spare change and putting it into an investment account. So Milo makes it simple and easy for you to save without even having to think about it. So if I make a purchase for $4.92, it's gonna round it up to five bucks, that extra eight cents is taken off the transaction and it's invested into an account. Um, wh- where does that money go? That money is invested in what kind of assets? So absolutely, that eight cents um, actually gets invested for you. So how Milo works, we're a goal-based platform. So you go through a three-minute sign-up process on a mobile device. You answer a set of questionnaires that determines your risk profile um, that gets sent to a portfolio manager along with the time horizon of the actual goal that you're saving for. And that money gets invested in a portfolio that's diversified in ETFs and that's suited to the risk tolerance that you that you have. So mm. um, that eight cents is actually that, uh, invested in probably three or four different products. We we're one of two people in Canada that use fractionalized trading to make sure that money is invested the right way. Hmm. So, okay, so you you identify a, you know a big problem for for Canadians here: lack of savings. They need an extra incentive to be putting money aside. Um, you come up with a solution for it from what you just described with what Milo does operationally. What's what's your next step? I mean, are you thinking this is the big idea? This is what is going to help me achieve all those goals? You know, scale venture funding, things like that. And, and where do you even start with this with this concept? In terms of, yes, Milo is the platform that can allow not only Canadians, but people around the world to be able to achieve their financial goals. It was started with a social mission, um, one around financial inclusion. How do we make it affordable and accessible for people to be able to have access to these different types of products and services? I think we've built a platform that that accomplishes all of that. Um, Milo starts at a flat $1 a month. There's no hidden fees, no fees to withdraw your money. Um, You literally couldn't invest for cheaper yourself if you wanted to in your own self-directed account. 
Um, the second part is we're using the technology they use for online dating and booking travel and, and anything else that's directly at the tips of your, your fingers on your mobile device at any time and to be able to make it as accessible as possible um, for, for people. So definitely this is the idea, the venture that um, it hits all the checkboxes, right? It, it has a, a positive social mission. It's a business that can make a, a huge impact and as well as um, one that can help our investors and shareholders to have a, a great return as, as well. It's a, We're building a profitable, sustainable business here um, that's determined on, on good values. So um, definitely where I see myself spending the next 10 years of my life and, 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 and building this up to be the full potential that it has and, and see the greatness. So it's it's also obviously a, a technology play here, a lot of development work involved as well. Right away from the from the beginning, from concept to start working on this project, were you also thinking of outsourcing this to India or or was there a different approach there? There's definitely a different approach to how you have to approach a fintech business versus any other type of business. So you have to run like a startup, you have to run lean, you have to be able to uh, manage your resources and your budgets well. Um, but building a minimal viable product, if you wanted to build a, um, a dating application prototype, you could do so during hackathon in a 40-hour period. If you want to build a fintech application, you need to have security, you need to have regulatory approval, um, it, you need to have partners to be able to actually move money and, and, and transfer money from different accounts. Um, so you, you definitely can't start it overnight. In my case, it took about a year and a half to get it up and running to a point where we were actually ready to process our first dollar. So that's difficult and when you take a look at the, the lean startup methodology and how do you build a minimal viable product that has all of the security requirements that you need. Um, it costs about a million dollars to, to launch a, a proof of concept in fintech In the app. fintech space, right. So with that, uh, we raised our first financing and, and we did so uh, through a $500,000 uh, friends and family round through uh, First Capital Partners. And um, we built uh, the team that essentially was able to bring this product to market. So what do you what are you bringing for a friends and family around? What is because there's there's no MVP there, right? Or is it is it just a pitch deck? Are there partnerships lined up? Is there? I mean, obviously you have the the business model outlined, but what are they investing in at that point? It's a bit less tangible, right? So I would say this isn't applicable for the everyday entrepreneur. It's it's more applicable for for fintech or regulated businesses. Um, it's difficult to raise money just on a pitch deck, at least in Canada and at least today. Uh, I know a lot of people in the U.S. have done it in, in the past and, and been able to do so very, very successfully. But um, my approach to it was have a business idea that's validated um, and was able to get validation from third-party applications around the world and, and the traction that they had on, on the platform. Um, a financial model that made sense. So I was able to go through and walk my investors through line by line the right financial model that I was able to build the business that we're, we're looking to build and executing on for the last three and a half years. And then, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. So we go through, do customer discovery. We built a wait list. Uh, we tested different things by um, including things like name, address, employer information into that wait list to show that it's more than just an email address and we can start to identify what is the cost to acquire a customer? What is the way to actually go out and, and show that there's real traction in the Canadian space and a real product market fit? Mm-hmm. Ran a lot, of some, uh, a lot of surveys as well to be able to do that. So um, a lot of face-to-face surveys, uh, surveys of people on our network and we ended up talking to over 10,000 Canadians before we actually went through and actually um, raised that first uh, $500,000. Hmm. So you're you're fresh with $500,000 of of funding. Um, you know, you, a lot of a lot of direction is starting to become clear now. What is your first use for that fresh capital? 
um, not spend it, not spend <laughs> let it, <laughs> let it in the bank. So using all those frugal skills that I built up as a bootstrapped entrepreneur and um, using that same mentality towards that. So extending your own way as, as long as possible. And essentially for us, it was how do we get the product to a point where we're ready to go and essentially raise for the next round, determine what those metrics were, but also get the product up and running and, and off the ground. So um was setting up the regulatory approval it was uh going through and 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 finding the right partners and suppliers and it took us about eight months to actually even open up our corporate bank account which you think opening a bank account just go into the bank and get it done but to be able to move money from people's accounts and do pre-authorized debit it's actually a lot of scrutiny that we have to go through and, and, and sounds manage. like a nightmare it was, <laughs> logistically definitely a nightmare and, and the worst part was we didn't have a timeline right we didn't know when the regulators were going to get back to us with an approval we didn't know when the banks were going to say okay this is enough information that you give us to be able to open up these accounts so you know we always thought we're two or three weeks away and then two three weeks away just ended up dragging out to about eight to ten months uh, total wow. for, for both of those key team push on so you keep pushing absolutely is there is there so i know obviously your your dad's involved in this in in one way shape or form did you there's a lot of stuff that you mentioned here that you know as much as you could find some of the answers these things online you're still you're still one man. Who did you surround yourself with when when you're building this concept? So I was very fortunate. One, I had direct access to Jay and Dominic first and First Capital. They sold their last business to Scotia Bank in the fintech space as well. So you could say they're the original fintech of Canada. Um, too. So I got to lean on their expertise and lean on their network. I leaned on my network of people that I started to, to build out. And I also was introduced to Liam Chung back in 2016. So Liam was one of the original um, people behind Penson Financial. He started Fidelity Clear in Canada. He essentially knows the pipes and the regulation extremely well for, I guess, the financial infrastructure here in, in Canada. He was running a firm called Tactics Asset Management uh, back in, in, in 2016 that had been around for about six years had about 110 million assets under management and um, we approached him as a supplier and and um he had a good relationship with the first brothers which gave him a little more flexibility in wanting to support me but we built a great rapport together as well and uh, together him and i brainstormed how do we build this fractional trading infrastructure and how do we get approved by the regulators so um, this kind of startup supplier um, relationship that we had became one that was very tight and, and and solidified when it really solidified when we went on dragon's den together so um we 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 took it upon ourselves and to to go and and he essentially was acting as if he was a co-founder in the business and helping me brainstorm and, and build a lot of these ideas um through, Who, whose idea was it to go on dragons and was it his idea or to be honest, it, it was neither. It was uh, Dragon's Den producers calling us three weeks before filming saying, hey, we want you on, on air. So they, they found you. They found us through a Facebook ad we were running. So we'll talk a little bit about the Dragon's Den event uh, and, and how that went in, in just a minute. But um, in general, Liam really fell in love with the business when we went through. Like We had to practice and pitch and rehearse so many times um, that he said, you know what, I would love to be spending the next few years of my life building a business that allows me to service a million Canadians rather than a couple hundred wealthy uh, families. And uh, it was through that process that Milo, the startup, acquired Tactex, the incumbent. And essentially, I brought Liam Chung in as a, a co-founder into that point um, to be able to go and, and help me run Milo from a day to day. So um, I had the season. He was veteran. a real strategic partner in, in all this. So we vertically integrated uh, the back end. We took our riskiest part of the business, uh, which was our biggest supplier to, to this. 
Um, we took the industry knowledge that we needed to get up and running, as well as a startup that only raised half a million dollars. If we wanted to go and launch a business similar to Tactex, that would have cost us at least a half million, if not more, to get up and running. So Tactex is a profitable business coming in, gave us cash flow, it covered all of our expenses and brought in the, the right expertise to get it off the ground. So surrounding yourself with the right people is really important. And Liam was definitely instrumental in, in doing so. Okay, so th- yeah, that I mean, that seems like a pivotal point in in getting Milo off the ground, um, and that opens up a lot of doors and helps you kind of maneuver a lot of things strategically. Um, but uh, you know, you brought up Dragons Den earlier, and I'm happy you did. Uh, I, tell us about how that came together. Yeah, so we went through the first five hundred thousand of funding uh, back at the beginning of 2016. We went through the acquisition of Tactex at the beginning of 2017. Um, during this whole process, Dragon's Den came to us and said, we want you to be live on air to be able to, to pitch this. Um, so we filmed anywhere between April 2017 and b- before we launched in, in uh, July 2017. So it was really exciting to be able to... So you filmed before you launched? We filmed before we launched and uh, and with very little notice. And, and it was a risky decision for us because... Mm-hmm. Looking at this opportunity, we could go and pitch in front of all of Canadians across the the country and be able to really get our name out there. We could get some financing and be able to do so. But at the same time, this was a really risky moment because if we went and embarrassed ourselves, if we went, I mean, we are a a fintech application. We're managing people's money. If we don't present ourselves the right way, the whole business could go bankrupt just based off bad publicity at, at that point. We decided and to go for it. If you watch the show, I'm sure you've seen that happen enough times before, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So we definitely knew that there were, there was a risk. And three weeks to, to prep is definitely not a lot of time. And three weeks to prep when you have a whole business to run and get the product up and out, it's definitely even uh, it's a split of priorities and uh, makes it difficult to, to run the business. But we went for it. We um, we practiced. We came up with a great pitch, and uh, we went on on Dragon's Den. So most people go in there. Um, it's a two minute pitch, and if you're horrible, well, you get kicked out immediately. If you're you're decent, they ask you a few questions, and you could be in there for five ten minutes. If you're a really good business, you're in there for half an hour. And I think the longest was about forty five minutes. They told us that someone's been in there, so they told us don't expect to be in there for longer than forty five minutes. They really pump you up, like they they put up the mic, they uh, get you ready. They kind of they want to see some energy out they, there. They want to see some energy, and they also want to get your nerves running. At the end of the day, it is reality TV, mm-hmm. and um, and so we went and we went and gave our pitch. I don't remember anything from the two minute section. I just wanted to make sure I didn't mess up or embarrass <laughs> embarrass the company. And then we went in for Q and A, uh, and. We got a deal almost immediately, which was awesome. And from that point on, I was relieved. I felt this sense of comfort. I did what I wanted to do on Dragon's End. I got a deal on TV. I built the trust of the consumers. And I said, you know, this is a product that you should take a look at. And, and provided some validation there. Provided some validation. And, and just to clarify, for anyone who hasn't seen the picture, you, you can't see it. By the way, you can go, you can just search in, you'll you'll find it. But you were asking for $400,000 for, for 5% of the business. That was your, your ask. And you got to deal with three different dragons that, that came together and didn't really negotiate on on price either, right? So we got the deal almost immediately within maybe 10 or 15 minutes of, of being in the, the area, um, in the filming uh, production facility. And we were in there for an 
hour and 45 minutes. It was the longest hour and 45 minutes of my entire life. It was, uh, um, they drilled us with a bunch of really tough questions, but um, we ended up getting a deal with three dragons on board. And because the first dragon didn't negotiate us on valuation when he came on board originally, when the other two joined in later on, maybe another 20 minutes later, um, it just turned into a great kind of episode for for us. Now, one of the things and kind of the behind the scenes that you don't see as a, as a typical viewer, and I've pitched a lot of VCs in my life. I've probably um, over 500 pitches in, in, in total. The, the dragons that we pitched to were some of the most intelligent and asked some of the most sophisticated questions that you could even imagine. They were some of the best VCs I've ever talked to in my entire life. Hmm. So on the day that the Dragon's Den episode aired, what was that day like for you? What was that day like for Milo? Did you watch it live? So the day the Dragon's Den episode aired was one, I was probably more terrified that day than the day I actually filmed. Because um, you didn't know what it was going to look like, the pitch. We went on TV. We did a great job. We got a deal. So I knew it was going to be awesome. I, I, I knew that it would um, have a good result at the end of the day. But I didn't know what parts they were going to keep and what parts they didn't. I completely blanked out for that time I was, I was pitching them. We were in there for an hour and 45 minutes. You know, for all I knew, I could have looked like a clown up there. Um, to put more pressure on myself, because I seem to like to, to do so, I hosted a party with all my closest friends, all my closest family, all of our team members and their friends and family, as well as all of our investors. So we had a full office, a brand new office. It's kind of like our office warming slash Dragon's Den airing. And uh, before I went up, I, I gave a, a little speech about it um, and what I was expecting. And I was a little bit nervous before what happened. And then, um, thank God, I didn't embarrass myself. And then at the end, uh, it, it was a great room full of energy. Everyone was proud to come together, built such a beautiful business with everyone that was in the room together. It's very motivational and, uh, for the team. Yeah. It was great motivation for the team, great motivation for the investors, um, as well as all the supporters, right? It, being an entrepreneur, it definitely is um, not only painful for, for you, but also um, is not always accommodating for your friends that you bail on when you have to do late nights working at the office or uh, cancel last minute vacations uh, because you have to go uh, to another business meeting um, or your, your family that's there for emotional uh, support and, and, and uh, helping you along the way and, and, and managing that too. So it was a great uh, moment that we all got to enjoy uh, together. Hey guys, just a quick word from one of our sponsors, Breather, that helps make this podcast possible. Breather's mission is to empower companies with private workspace that helps them meet their full potential. Growing rapidly, Breather has a network of over 400 workspaces across 10 global markets available on demand for hours, days, or months at a time with no membership or subscription fee. To learn more, visit breather.com. This episode is also brought to you by KBD Insurance. KBD Insurance is a Montreal-based insurance broker specializing in commercial, car, and home insurance. We can all agree that insurance is more complicated than it needs to be, which is why KBD's team of over 30 brokers aims to simplify the insurance process for their clients. Check them out on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, or visit them at kbdinsurance.com. Life is chaotic. Insurance doesn't have to be.
So uh, I think what happens is a, a lot of people see a handshake deal, so to speak, on on TV. But I mean, that's not that's only I call it half the battle, right? I mean, once the cameras start roll, stop rolling and you get into the back office, there's due diligence and things like that. Tell us a bit about that process. Did did the deal close? Yeah, so we signed a, a, essentially a draft term sheet as soon as we we left. Is that done on the spot? Like when you when you you don't go home and come back? Like it's done there? So as soon as I exited the the pitch, we sat down, debriefed, we filmed a couple of promo shots, had to give each other a bunch of high fives, and uh, we actually filmed our intro after we exited the that. So I guess it's a, a secret of the trade is they don't film the intros for everyone; they only film the intros for the pitches I think that they're they're going to use. Then after that, we met directly with the analysts, and they gave us essentially what was essentially a draft term sheet. So we, the analysts are not the dragons themselves. Analysts are not the dragons themselves. They are people who work directly with the dragons. Uh, come out, they have the the, the terms that we negotiated uh, on the the show. Um, we actually negotiated a few things in that draft term sheet. They had a, a non compete, non shop. Uh, we uh, we so we scratched those out and and and. Um, took that uh, right on on the spot. We actually followed up in due diligence. Um, it was at the same time that we were raising our seed round of financing, um, but ultimately we decided to bring on a, a strategic investor, Desjardins Capital, and they came in on, on board in, in place of the Dragons and, and um, took a majority of our seed round of financing along with Anshkabek Capital and First Capital Partners as well. And we raised about uh, two and a half million dollars uh, at that point. So, so Desjardins effectively replaced the Dragons. So no money was actually exchanged hands from the dragons directly correct so we we ended up uh finishing our seed round with a total of about four million dollars uh, total raised in the business does that is that partly your decision their decision a better offer from desjardins it was finding the right partners right uh finding investors is like dating and you have to go through the process with lots of people and and once you get investments like getting married and for us desjardins um, really added strategic value and was able to understand our business in a way that um they're they're fintech experts so so why and not just because there's cameras rolling and you're on live not live tv but you're on reality tv doesn't make the process any different, right? It still has to yeah, be the fit that you're looking for. You still go through due diligence. You still go through and, and, and have to have that fit after the fact. Um, they all have investment theses and, and and how do you fit in that investment thesis? Um, so for us, uh, uh, Desjardins was an, an awesome addition to our cap table. So that was your uh, your seed round. Yep. What was the total amount of that round? Uh, so total amount of that round was... We finished our seed round of financing with three point nine million, so it's just over uh, three and a half million. Okay, and have you raised any any other funding to date? Uh, no, we're going through the process of raising our Series A uh, at the moment, so uh, that's going extremely well uh, as well. Right, so now you're in the process of of raising your Series A, is your third round of of funding that you're you're going through. What are some of your pro tips for for fundraising? Start early, start often. So I, I tell younger entrepreneurs that I, I meet with who are early on in the process, maybe doing this for the first time, grab a coffee date with an investor once a week, um, bring them up to speed, pitch them. You're going to quickly learn what are the metrics and the kind of goalposts that you need to be able to raise successfully from them. And then you keep doing so. So you're meeting with different people. You're getting a different sample of, of, of investors. You're talking to angels. You're talking to VCs. Maybe talking to family offices or other type of uh, strategic uh, funds. In our case, it would be banks or insurance companies. 
And then you identify what are the needs of each one of these people. And then you, it helps you build the business. Because the last thing you want to do is need money. You have runway in three months. And then you have to go out and start fundraising and realize something you could have done six months ago would have helped do so. One of the best things is, is uh, it's like dating and getting married, right? It's finding the right person. No one wants to get married on the first date. If you start early, you're going through, you're allowing them to give you the feedback and build the business that they want to invest in, but they also feel like they're part of the process. So to be able to go through and give you that support when it comes time to actually go and, and do so, you've built the business that they want to see and that it fits their investment thesis and allows them to want to back you and support you. So um, my number one tip for entrepreneurs wanting to raise capital is start when you don't need the money do it every single week be religious about it take the notes take the feedback and go through the process do you balance that with the an element of you know not bringing or giving up too much control either at the same time you know uh, michelle specifically in when you talk about dragons and i know a big proponent of hers is to empower entrepreneurs to, to maintain most of their business so eventually if they get to that ipo day they're ipoing with you know, at least half their business instead of IPOing with two, three percent of their business. So there's definitely a strategy for for funding, and and we could spend an entire podcast just talking about the the mechanisms associated with when do you raise and how much you raise and how much do you dilute by. Um, a typical uh, startup will dilute by twenty twenty five percent every round. Um, if you're in a desperate cash position where you're approaching the end of your runway and you haven't validated what you need to, you might be giving up 50, 60% of your business and across the table, across the table. And if you are, um, if you're at a point where you're doing extremely well and people are excited you know, those hot Silicon Valley startups that we see all the time that are written about, you're giving up, you know, five to 10% of your company at that point. Right. So there's different dilution points associated with everything, but, um, it's not about retaining, uh, retaining the entire pie, um, there's a strategy behind venture financing that allows you to raise more money. Um, Masters of Scale podcast talks about this all the time. Raising more money than you need, being able to have the resources and the firepower associated to building the best business you can, building a global success. And you know what? It's worth rewarding the people on your cap table who believed in you and supported in you to be able to do that. The other thing is each investor you bring on board becomes a partner in the business, regardless of how much ownership they have. They're there to support you. They're there to mentor you. They're there to open up their network to you. Um, your interests are aligned at that that point as well. Um, I can tell you I am very happy to have each one of my investors on my cap table and happy to share my piece of the pie with them in order to be able to go and, and, and do this. They deserve every penny of it. And it's it's not just about maintaining the your, your piece of the pie, but it's also about allowing you to expand the pie entirely, right? Yeah, you can definitely build uh, something where you own 100% of a small pie, which is similar to what I did at Ski PCR. You know, I bootstrapped and, and built a nice self-employed business. But if you want to build something that's scalable, um, like the definition of venture back to be able to go through and, 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 and build a large business with a nice uh, exit or, or spending off great cash flow, um, you definitely need uh, you need the right partners to build uh, that big, uh, big, huge company. So when when you're on Dragons and you're still you know building your beta and doing customer research and building up this email list so you're ready to launch. Tell us about launch day. So once you have this you know the, this platform ready to go and you're ready to launch it to the public, what did that day look like and and how did you get it out there? So 
my first year and a half, two years working at Milo, I felt so bad for my investors because I never kept my word with them. I, I told them, I think with the access to the data that I had at the point that I was talking to them, I was like, okay, the app's going to be ready in a month. The, app is, the partnerships are going to be signed in the next month. And I kept getting this information and then things kept delaying the process. So for me, it was such a relief to finally go back to my investors and say, it's live. We've done it. We've solidified all the technology we needed. We've solidified all the partnerships we needed. We've onboarded real customers onto the platform. Anyone can download it. Go tell your friends. Go tell your family. Let, let's get. It's this a good done. feeling. It was a sense of relief, and it was it was incredible. Did you? What was the marketing plan around that that launch day? So we're lucky. We actually built a wait list of around uh, 20,000 uh, people at that time because um, we had done a lot of pre-launch efforts to to get up and running. So it was releasing it to them. It was a press release to to go to market. It was um, optimizing our Facebook ads and and really doing a big push. Um, Funny enough, I think we launched on July 6th of, of that. Um, our CTO's daughter was born on June 27th, so just the week before we, we launched the app. Um, and we're a small team, right? We're a team of like seven people. How selfish of him. I know, right? So uh, we said they had two, uh, two, two children in one week. So it was, um, so yeah, definitely pressure was high, but things were, were going well. Um, all hands on deck and, and really uh, making sure that the, the app uh, launch was a success. And, and I got to say, um, you put out a couple fires here and there, but all in all, nothing that uh, nothing that went bad. Worthy. Absolutely. Right. So right. It, was, it was great. So so one thing that, you know, a lot of people must be thinking and, and the dragons brought up as well is, is the model for, for Milo. You, you charge customers a, a dollar uh, per month subscription model, but that's not the only way that Milo makes money. That's not the f- entire model, correct? Absolutely. So Milo went to market originally as a free product. We quickly pivoted to a dollar a month subscription model um, and grandfathered all the original users into their free product for, for life. Um, and we really wanted to focus on clear and simple pricing. Again, back to financial inclusion, um, simple pricing is, is one part of how do you make something affordable when people don't have to make decisions about fees and when something costs $12 a year, it absolutely just makes sense. It, goes, it, it would go against your mission too, right? If if you're charging $12 a month, you're not really empowering. Absolutely, it would go against, uh, go against our mission. Um, so the second part was, okay, how do we go and, and build a product that maybe has more enhanced features? And we recently launched a another subscription product called Milo Advantage. Uh, Milo Advantage includes TFSAs, RSPs, social responsible investing, next day withdrawals, and best of all, $5 perks to brands that you love every single month. We've had Amazon, Netflix, Starbucks, Uber, um, all on, on the platform. And our users essentially, if they take advantage of our perks, get paid for saving and investing their money. So it, it's a fantastic uh, product uh, as well. So Half of our subscription revenue comes from uh, half of our revenue comes through subscription, um, but you must have noticed Milo.ai uh, where we're pushing in your domain on, right right in our domain name Milo.ai um, stands for Milo.artificial intelligence right it's uh, like every great Montreal company and it's because Milo has access to all this fantastic um, transactional data so because we're rounding up your purchases Milo is able to identify different opportunities for you to find the right products and services um, financial products and services for you. So uh, Milo never sells any of that information. We actually uh, built a very strong privacy policy that protects all of our users' uh, data. It's, it's a big conversation around transactional data and the ethics around it. And for us, we wanted to be very user-centric from day one. 
Um, but what we do do is help our users achieve their financial goals. And the best way to do so is be able to help them find and identify these opportunities to save money on insurance products, lending products, um, mortgage solutions, um, uh, banking fees that they may be paying. So what we're aspiring to do is being able to make these right recommendations to the users so they can save money in these products. And Milo would then collect a success fee if the user likes the product that they're in. Um, the retailer would then go and come back to us and, and, and pay a success fee for Right. That. The, the success fee comes from the retailer side, of course. So n- nothing on the user side Absolutely. other than the subscription. So it's a win-win-win for everybody. Right. Um, the user saves money in products that they're already buying or already in market for. Milo uses that the data to help them find the right product and service. And uh, the retailer acquires a new customer, which is difficult to do in the finance industry. And uh, we make some money at the end. So Everyone it's, wins, uh, right? Win-win-win. You you mentioned earlier that you know your when you came up with the concept and you're raising you raised your first financial round your your operations of the business were all geared towards you know what your the goals that you need to achieve to get to the next financing stage right mm-hmm. so which after the friends and family was the seed round now you've you're done your seed round you're aiming towards your Series A there's obviously metrics you goals that you guys have internally. What what are those for a fintech company like like Milo? What what are those internal metrics that you're tracking that are up on your whiteboard and? Absolutely. So uh, we've progressed a little bit from the whiteboard where we're now fully digital. We have these nice digital dashboards that we're tracking. But um, the conversations I'm having today pitching Series A investors have to do around um, scalability of the business and how have we proven that this business is is scalable. The second part has to do with cost to acquire a customer and goes back to the scalability. Can you maintain that cost to acquire a customer when you hit 500,000 users, a million users, 5 million users? And and what does that growth trajectory uh, look like? revenue per customer and and how do you continue to, to do so um, by building new products and making great recommendations for, for products and essentially building a, a great sustainable business. And the last component has to do with uh, customer satisfaction, right? I, I'm curious because I'm seeing obviously a lot of success everywhere around you right now, you know, successful pitch on Dragon's Den, uh, beautiful office that we're actually recording in right now. Um, you've grown your employees, grown your user base. Was there a time in the business at, at any point really that you thought that you were close to either failing or thinking this is not going to work you're going to have to shut this down did that come up i think in any any business uh that's definitely something that that comes up and and we've had our fair share uh, had my fair share in ski pcr had my fair share as well at, at my piece and and definitely with milo there are different challenges that you have to tackle uh, every day um, one that a lot of Montreal startups are facing today is attracting and retaining top talent, especially in the engineering team. Um, so we have to focus on, on on building the right environment, helping them focus on tackling the right problems, to be able to go and, 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 and be motivated by the work that they, they do from a day-to-day basis. Um, another challenge for us had to do with um, one of our key suppliers. Um, so one of our key suppliers um, was acquired by another uh, company and, and um through a transition period of an acquisition, there's obviously uh, a lot of things up in the air and they weren't moving at the same pace that we're looking to move. So um, it was at that time we vertically integrated TACTEX and, and reduced some of our risk 
associated with the investment components of, of the business. Um, and lastly, I think it has to do with uh, the partnerships you need to get up and running. Um, at the time that Milo went um, and p- uh, pitched the AMF to be able to build this uh, product, um, the AMF didn't have the FinTech sandbox at the time, right? We were kind of paving the road to be able to, to do so. So I wouldn't say there wasn't necessarily any challenges be- beyond being the first person to go and really do this in, in Canada, but more along the, the uncertainty of where you're going to end up, right? You're spending money, you have this concept, the business model could break if, if you get one regulatory approval that doesn't go through. And um, we're very fortunate to be uh, having such a collaborative relationship with the, the, the AMF and, and the regulatory bodies that they saw what we were doing was in the best interest of the customer. Um, we helped them kind of pave the road. And since then, we've actually been on different advisory committees with the regulators to help them pave the road for fintech in general in Canada. So um, definitely we've had our fair share of challenges, but we've turned those challenges into opportunities. And it's helped us build uh, the barriers to entry for, for other businesses to get up and running the space and also pave the road for innovation here in Canada as well. What is t- tell us about the state of of Milo today? How many employees are you? Uh, how many, if you can share any, how many customers you guys have on on board right now? Or absolutely. So we um, we've had a lot of success in, in the past little bit. We still have a long way to go, but uh, definitely excited about our, our path and, and what we're capable of. Um, and some of the potential associated with building an awesome global fintech company. So um, for Milo, we're currently 30 employees, um, 30 great teams, primarily in uh, financial operations, engineering and um, operations on on the the customer support side. Uh, We've onboarded over 150,000 Canadians onto the platform. So um, by far the largest robo-advisor in Canada, although we like to consider ourselves a personal finance management platform rather than a robo. A robo is the first step to helping you achieve those financial goals. Um, we've had a lot of success in terms of our, our client acquisition and um, we're excited for the next journey. So for us, uh, what's next on, on the docket is launching uh, two new products coming out um, Q3 and Q4 of this year, as well as uh, targeting some international expansion uh uh, looks like early 2020 based off of um, the progress international of expansion to the US to so there's a lot of uh, competition in the US obviously right. I'd love to go back and, and, and do that but it's a tough market and um, one of the things that's beautiful about Montreal is our bilingual and multilingual nature right we embrace the different cultures that are um, here in, in, in the city and um, and here in Canada as well so um, one of the things that we've been really good at is building a multilingual platform from day one that um, allows you to go through and um, have multiple languages directly on there. So one of the things that we're looking to do is how do we target a less competitive market where other people may be a little bit um, more frightened or hesitant to enter those markets in somewhere where we thrive. So um, other people's barrier to entry is somewhere, a space that we want to tackle. So we're going after um, non-English speaking markets. I mean, so you guys operate in, in, in Canada. Your, your, your goal is to empower Canadians and help them financially. You, you Usually I, I'm curious about why startups are here and not in Silicon Valley, for example. Now, obviously, because of your mission, you wouldn't end up in, in Silicon Valley. But why stay in Montreal instead of going to Toronto, for example, where fintech is a bit more prevalent? So I definitely think that um, Montreal has a great fintech scene and definitely competes with Toronto. And definitely at the time when, when we started Milo, um, 
we were at a point where fintech was maybe a little bit ahead of the curve, right? Milo is one of the first true fintech platforms in the country, alongside the success that uh, Wellsimple and Borrowell had uh, in the early days uh, as well. So why Montreal? It's a great question. A lot of people ask me uh, that, especially coming from the U.S., why do you stay here? Um, one's a beautiful city, and you can't argue with Montreal in the, the summertime, so it's a great place to live. Um, there's always a, fr- a frugal nature to me, and uh, Montreal has a, a great cost of living and, 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 and just overall quality of life that you, you don't necessarily see across the, the rest of the country um, or competing uh, competing cities in, in the U.S. or Silicon Valley, right? Um, and then lastly, um, Canada has great programs for entrepreneurs to get up and running. So um, definitely a part of it has to do with the great shred credits that we have, so uh, scientific research and development credits. Um, why not uh, build a business here? It's, it's a great place to do so. Uh, on the other hand, too, are there, what are the biggest challenges or downsides to being here in Montreal? Access to talent is definitely uh, difficult. We have a... Um, a great, very talented labor pool, and with all the universities here, there's a lot of recent graduates that are entering the market as well, which we we love. But you're also competing against a lot of the larger uh, corporates coming in. Microsoft, uh, Google has a great office here as well, so you're competing for the right tech talent. But uh, Montreal, there's definitely a lot of great companies to work for, and and we're happy to be amongst the some of the best here, trying to attract that talent. So um, I'd have to say that's the number one thing that we're we're fighting for today. If, if I were to come back five years from now and, and tell you, you know, Milo is this massive success, it's achieved everything you've wanted it to, what does that future look like to you? So my ultimate dream is is modeled around the success that WeChat has had in China. So WeChat, you do everything on a mobile platform through their app that allows you to do things from online dating, applying for jobs, paying your friends, chatting with your friends. Um, the true purpose of that platform, this entire ecosystem, it's a platform that allows you to be able to do all of this. For Milo, what I'm aspiring to be able to do is help you manage all aspects of your financial life in one simple, easy-to-use platform. You're no longer going to be tied to your local banking app or the app that you have for your mortgage or your insurance. You'll be able to use and harness the power of data to be able to make this the best experience possible and ultimately allow you to achieve your, your, your own goals. One of the things I go back to is People spend on average four hours shopping for a vacation. They're looking for the best direct flight. They're trying to save a couple hundred dollars off of of that flight as well and finding the right time. But if people spend that same four hours looking for the right mortgage and maybe saving a quarter basis point, they're saving on average about $1,000 a year. So they'd get a free flight for the next 25 years if they spent the same time and effort finding the right financial product. So if I can allow them to go and do this, I can put money back in their wallet and allow them to live the life that they want to live. And that's ultimately what success is for me. Phil Barrar, co-founder and CEO of Milo. To listen to more stories from local startup founders, visit montrealstartups.ca slash podcast, available on all your streaming platforms. If you have questions or comments about our show, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at info at montrealstartups.ca.